Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. Thank you for joining me today. As you know, on It's All About Food, we cover a lot of topics because, in my opinion, everything is connected to our food choices. There's been a lot of, shall I say, goings on in the last week or so. Very troubling around the world. So many conflicts, wars, violence. And then we have climate issues, earthquakes. Afghanistan just saw like three giant earthquakes in the same week. There are all different kinds of things happening all over the planet, which make life very difficult. And when life gets difficult, it affects our food and what we eat and our choices, how much variability we have. And then that affects so many other things, because if we're not eating the way we need to, that affects our health. It affects all life on planet Earth. Everything is connected. What we're going to focus on today is the climate and the climate crisis and what we can do about it and how it's affecting us, whether we realize it or not. I have with me the author of Climate Grief from Coping to Resilience and Action, Shauna Weaver, PhD. Now, Shauna Weaver is a career-long educator and mental health advocate. She spent her early career as a mental health therapist and school counselor. The climate crisis compelled her to return to graduate school to earn a PhD in sustainability education and explore the intersection of nature and human wellness. She has presented on environmental justice topics to audiences all over North America, Australia, and Europe. She is currently focused on education program development, household sustainability, and wellness advocacy. When she isn't working or traveling, she is home in northern Minnesota, exploring trails with her three-legged canine companion. Hi, Shauna, and welcome to It's All About Food. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Just reading your bio before we even jump into the book brings up so many different things for me. I'm thinking about when I went to college, which was I started in 1976, graduated in 1980 with my bachelor's and later got a master's in chemical engineering, just completely different with what I'm doing today. But there were so many topics that were not available to us for study. They just didn't exist. People hadn't thought about them yet. And you talk about change makers in your book, and we'll get to that because I think it's an important topic. But <laughs> change makers hadn't come along saying that we need to have certain to topics to study in college for us to expand and grow. And, and you mentioned mental health therapy. I remember reading recently in the New York Times about how many more young people today are going to therapists, just like as a regular thing, you know, some days we go bowling and some days we th see our therapist and it's a thing more and more, not just for younger people, but for men. And it wasn't a thing. <laughs> for a while for men to admit that they needed some help with the way they think. So it's just exploding. Everything that's in your bio that represents so much change that we've had in the decades and, and just that you can study sustainability education. I remember the boyfriend that I had at the time when I was in high school going into college, he was interested in the environment. And the only thing that was, that was really available to him was to go to Syracuse for environmental education. And it was about forestry, just learning how to grow trees so you could cut them down. Yeah, a lot really has changed. And it is it is funny to think back to even for my master's program, I went in 2008 uh, for my first master's degree in, in psychology and, and uh, psychological services. 
And uh, that was a, a track that could bring you toward uh, being a social worker or a community counselor, uh, a county worker, that sort of thing. And I remember saying my first day of class that I was really interested in the intersection of the environment and human health, and that I would like to to do some sort of, I think I called it wilderness therapy, which did exist then. And uh, and I remember the professor saying, well, that, that's really not it's really not a thing and you're you're probably not in the right place if that's what you're trying to do and it was at the time i believed him i believed that there weren't options and there were at that time there was eco psychology which i found later on in my studies but uh but yeah it took it took a long time it took a labyrinth of of different parts of the mental health field and um, the environmental education field for me to to really zero in on what I'm doing now. And what you're doing now is wonderful. Thank climate, you. Climate, yeah. Climate grief. I just need to take a breath first because it's about the first half of the book when you're talking about the climate crisis and how it impacts us. And how many of us, if not all of us, are experience, experiencing grief because our home, our home is sick and dying. And that's powerful stuff. So you go through the stages of grief so that we can acknowledge in ourselves perhaps what we're experiencing and where we are in the stage of grief. And then you go into some of the things that we can do perhaps to manage our grief. And maybe, hopefully, maybe we can turn all of this around. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, the hope, right? We have to see hope as a practice and as something that we intend to have and intend to maintain. And we do that through doing the practice and the work of grieving that's something that that I've learned throughout my life. When we when we grieve, it's uh, it's not exactly something that happens to us. The thing causing grief happens to us. Climate change is happening to us. But uh, to move through grief is something that takes a lot of work, and it takes uh, the the intention of sitting in it and thinking through it and figuring out what works for us to, to move through the phases um, and to come out, um, you know, not, not so much the other side of grief in that we've, we've completed that process, but to, to come to a point that we have a more holistic understanding of what it is that we're grieving, why the importance of it and what we can do about it. And that that last step, that meaning making around our grief is where we then start to develop hope. Well, definitely acknowledging the problem is a giant step for most people. It, not just about climate grief, but any mental issue that we're experiencing. If we if we can't even like take ourselves out of it and look at the problem, 
then I, I don't think we'll have great success trying to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Acknowledging climate change is, is something that is so hard because we know if we accept it to be true, if we stop denying some aspect of how it's impacting us, um, then, then we have to do the work. And so our culture has so many ways we get to be in denial about anything that we're grieving. We can escape and we can numb out and we can distract ourselves and we can figuratively and literally run away, find find things that uh, keep us distracted and keep us in denial. And I'm sure we can all think of times that we've gone through relationships ending or gone through a move or gone through changing a job and all these sorts of big and little G uh, grief experiences that we have. Uh, it, they can sit dormant in our bodies for years without us acknowledging that that we have work to do and grief to move through. And that's what that's what that first stage that grief does for us is it it lets us escape it. And sometimes that's needed. It's needed while we're in a crisis. Um, it's needed so that we can go to work and function during the day. It's needed so that we can get kids up and moving in the morning, but it's a tool um, and it, it shouldn't be a, a place that we live. You mentioned in your book early in the book, the disappearance of frogs and the increase in ticks. And this is something so subtle. And yet it's true. Oh, sometimes I think I'm not young anymore. And when I was young, I used to go in the backyard and I used to play in the dirt and I would see all these kind of things. So maybe I'm not noticing them because I'm not a kid anymore and I'm not playing in the dirt. But when I am in the dirt, and it happens from time to time, I don't see what I used to see, except in some places where insects can be out of control, like the increase of ticks or uh, where my mom lives. It's like her community is living on a giant ant hole and all the ants come out. But things seem to be more out of balance, more of things we don't want and less of the things we do want. I like frogs and I know that frogs do a lot of wonderful things and they're fun to watch and to listen to, but there aren't as many as there used to be. And then people talk about insects on the windshield that we don't really see anymore. And that's true. Right. We've, we've done a great job of killing off the biodiversity at the smallest level that we don't really, we don't think about because we don't, you know, we don't notice them. And when we do, it's usually an annoyance or a fear, a fear of spiders or a fear of, of bees and, and wasps and other pollinators. And, um, and so we don't think about when they're gone, when mayflies, you know, I remember driving through country roads and just the windshield being covered with mayflies and other people, you know, I've, I've heard stories about um, that experience where they live with monarchs and, uh, and so we we see it when it surprises us, sadly, like as butterflies go away, but um, we're okay with with blasting our yards with um, with insect repellent and and we don't really think about the fact that when we kill mosquitoes, we're killing everybody else too, uh, including birds and all the way up the the chain. Um, and so, those little things that that I 
noticed as a kid that of course all kids can notice uh, when they think about their childhood. We're really good when we're kids at noticing details. And I think it's really important to stay connected to those memories and, and those of us who live in the same places we grew up. Um, wouldn't it be interesting if, if we could have had our own accounts as kids to look back on and our, our own little scientific discoveries as a child and I was lucky enough to have a few of those experiences and I would sit on the the dock at my house and I would write and years later found my stories and and had proof that indeed our ecosystem is changing right under right under my dock so um so it's a it's a bittersweet piece of evidence for me that um you know sort of the the canary in the coal mine, as they say, usually is the insects around us and the really small critters and the sounds that they make and the lack of those sounds. And um, and it, it just goes right up the, the chain. And so that's that connection of our emotional sense uh, and, and uh, you know, our, our presence that we have in a place along with our observation skills and accepting what we see as reality and, and all of us having sort of that citizen science uh, perspective when we look around the world. You mentioned the monarch butterflies and there was an article recently in New York Times about some people here in New York City that were trying to reach governmental agencies to allow milkweed to grow so that the monarchs would have something to eat because there are certain stages in their life where that's all they eat, that's their sole food source. And it was a very uplifting story because they finally reached somebody in the sanitation department or somewhere, I forget, but he he was the one who told his staff to mow various areas around the highways. And now he's not mowing them so that the milkweed can grow. And that was a really lovely, positive, sweet story. And it makes me think of the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is change makers. And you write early in the book about inspiring change makers who keep learning and changing as they learn and they refuse to preserve a problematic status quo. Can we can we talk about change makers and why you thought it was important to mention them early in the book? Yeah, I being an educator most of my life or you know working with kids in some capacity or another, the kids who seem to be getting into trouble are usually the kids who are going to make the biggest difference in the world. They're not going to stop being influential. And we are so lucky if we get to meet one of those kids and see their, their power and what they're able to accomplish because they have I think they they have a personality that allows them to stand out without fear. And I I think in, in some ways I was I was one of those kids. I was pretty stubborn and um had had my own thoughts about things and was lucky enough to have parents who embraced that and um and helped me shine in ways that I I could have been silenced. I could have been deemed a troublemaker. I could have been um, you know, told to to redirect my attention. 
um, to things that were less um, disruptive to the norm. And those kids who are critical thinkers, who question, who um, eat differently when they're eight because they're thinking more deeply about the food system, those kids who um, point out problems with capitalism and with the economy and with their, you know, with, uh, you know, the, all of the different things they hear right now about violence. And uh, I think we're now seeing more and more uh, generation filled with these change makers. And we're seeing more and more schools able to embrace that. And that's one of those great positive shifts that, that I see um, happening in this decade. And it's, I want us to have a, a growth mindset around influence and around uh, critical thinking and around troublemaking and around just thinking differently. Um, it, it's, it's those kids, especially that if we can help them, help them continue questioning, uh, then they're going to be able to point out stuff that so many of us just accept. There's so much going on in the world. It's so easy for us to just keep going with the status quo. It's easy for us to assume that um, one apple is the same as another apple at, the, at one grocery store versus another grocery store. And then when we dig deeper and we realize uh, what's different throughout our supply chain, um, what's different throughout our economy and our, our justice system. Um, there really are a lot of areas that need to change. And usually we can change things for the easier. Like, why do we need to mow so much? And if we didn't, um, all of a sudden we've made a significant change for the better and we're saving ourselves from some made up thing that that a capitalist system told us we had to do. And okay, I'm glad I asked that question and I wasn't expecting that answer. And now I'm thinking you have a whole nother book that I think would really be amazing talking about nourishing or encouraging the troublemakers somehow <laughs> and kind of seeing them in a different light. I don't have any children, but when I'm with my friends who have really young kids who are kind of feisty and and are always making trouble, I'm saying, enjoy that because these people, these young kids are really going to be independent thinkers when they grow up. You need to nurture that, even though it's difficult now. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe I was one of those. <laughs> but when I was in school, I was a good kid. I didn't make trouble in school. But uh, I've been watching more theater and programs recently, not intentionally, but about World War II and wars and, and Nazi Germany and, and how people fell into line and use that as an excuse. I was told to do this. And somehow, sometimes they get away with that in when they're accused and they're in a court system. I was told this is, and it's happening too with Trump and, and some of his cases, the people that said, this is, I was following instructions, but we're taught that. We're taught that in school. We're taught that in the military. And I think it's really important to nourish the, that that thinking. That was a that was a logo for a while for Apple. Think differently. Or think different. It wasn't correct grammatically. It was think different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, such a great point. 
yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's the, the big wrestle of life we have throughout life, right. Is how to live in community in a, a way that is best for the the community, which maybe feels like a contradiction then to, you know, being someone who sticks out and thinks differently or points out um, issues and solutions, but, but it really can, can live together when we consider, you know, what's best for the community, what's best for all of us um, at this point in time requires a lot of change because we're not living a world that is best for our community. And so it's taking those change major makers to see that and to point it out and then to um, in, enforce solutions. Let's move to mass extinctions, shall we? <laughs> uh, you write, this is not the first time carbon has impacted climate enough to cause mass extinction. It's the sixth, but this is the first time such an event has progressed at such a fast pace. Even in previous events of mass carbon release, such as from numerous supervolcano eruptions, mass extinction occurred over several hundreds or thousands of years. In comparison, humans have significantly altered carbon distribution in just the last 150 years. Since 1970, we have already observed a more than two-thirds drop in biodiversity. So I'm thinking about people that might be in the first stage of climate grief denial. There are a lot of people in denial. There are a lot of people that don't want to acknowledge that we're in we're on the path for a sixth mass extinction and we are the cause and if you just simply think about it you don't have to be the greatest scientist to realize we're at fault yeah it's i think it's a a common misunderstanding about ancient you know uh, geological history that you know dinosaurs just disappeared one day they just disappeared <laughs> or asteroids hit or, or whatever these triggers were um ice ages came and went and and it was it was like a overnight situation and that that just isn't the case um even volcanic you know major carbon disturbances that happen naturally uh, really did take thousands and a million years for that to to come to fruition of a of a complete almost complete um, mass extinction and so our tiny tiny snippet of time that humans have lived on this planet you know we're we're thousands of years old and our industrial revolution and everything that's come with it our population explosion um that's that's a hundred years old and um, we've increased carbon faster um, and more so than any other extinction event. And so when people say like, this is a natural occurrence, um, the reality is it's it's not. Um, cause set aside, uh, the timing of it and the, the, the length of time it's been taking is, is extraordinary. And then of course, the cause is also extraordinary. You talk about the stages of grief and you go into each one in detail. And I just mentioned denial. I always like to say denial is not just a river in Egypt. That's <laughs> the way I handle denial. And <laughs> in some ways, I think it's uh, maybe a way we've survived just by being in denial about certain things because there's so many things 
that are so unpleasant on the planet that if we just don't think about it, right. life can be good. Absolutely. It's, uh, it is a great tool for us to be able to, to function and, and to not have to change. And we know if we accept that, that climate change is happening, um, then we have to decide if we're going to change our own behavior. And if so, we're going to have to decide how, and it's a lot easier to not think about that. It's a lot easier for us to live a life we're used to, um, a life we grew up seeing, um, from the generation before us. And, um, and, and we get trapped in that. And then it's really hard to learn. It's really hard for us to deny a big aspect of reality and still be learning and growing and, and feeling happiness or contentment really in our body, because whether we admit it or not, um, you know, and we can't go outside because of Canadian wildfire smoke, um, that impacts our, our happiness and our health and our wellness. And so we can deny that that's the case, but, uh, you know, as, as we know, uh, our body keeps the score, it's keeping the score on things we deny too. The next couple of stages are anger and bargaining. And I know a lot of us are very angry. And when I talk about eating a plant diet, eating a vegan diet and being vegan and why we want to be vegan, because primarily for me, it's about cruelty to animals. And I think it's just, it's a, a nasty sci-fi movie we're living in, in of insanity where we raise animals to kill them for a moment of satisfaction on our plates. It's insanity. And I'm angry. And I live in that anger and I, I, that's not going away. It motivates a lot of things, but I've learned over the years that anger is not the best way to make change, <laughs> but a lot of people are angry and angry for so many different things. And, and we see that all the way up to government where we have dysfunctional government and each side is polarized and angry with the other group and doesn't want to give an inch. <laughs> and we see it with all the wars that are happening because both sides are angry, but we need to move to the next phase, right? To make change. We need to start bargaining. How does, how, how do we do that as a therapist? How do we do that? Yeah. Anger is, anger is a really hard emotion for us because it's, it's good for us to know that when we feel angry, something is happening. That's not safe like that's what it's there for. It's, it informs our body and our brains um, that we're in danger, that something that we love or something that we need is not secure. And we respond with anger because it does motivate action. And uh, learning how to feel anger and then create decide and create your response from there. Um, that takes, it takes a lot of work. And that goes back to that, you know, if, if we're going to therapy, if we're reading about emotions and wellness, and we're um, getting some sort of practice in meditation or spirituality, something that helps us create space between our stimulus and our response. 
our, you know, a space between what we, our reaction would be and what our response is going to be. And the more space we have there, um, that's, that's the, the tool for us to decide what our strategy is to actually get what we want and need. And uh, that's a learned behavior. And so moving through that anger phase of grief, you know, I'm, I'm, we could all think of losses and traumas in our life that may still bring back that anger pretty quickly. And so you're never going to move through anger and no longer ever feel angry about something. I absolutely still feel a lot of anger about climate change and about animal welfare and animal rights and all of that. Um, but it's, uh, it's good for us to remember that anger is a feeling. It doesn't have to be an action. Um, it can inform some of our actions and sometimes righteous anger does that, um, and is sometimes a powerful tool. Um, but we have to remember how it impacts others and anger impacts others, uh, sense of fear. And so we're triggering, you know, we feel anger because flight or fight has been triggered in our bodies and we're choosing to fight. Um, and then other people are going to be forced to do that back. And then it escalates from there. So, you know, it's, it's learning how to, to sit with that anger, understand where it's coming from, and then decide what it's trying to tell us and moving into, into bargaining that jackal here who easily feels anger when people walk by outside, um, <laughs> moving in into the bargaining phase of grief. What that means for any sort of grief we're moving through is uh, that we've accepted something has happened and we're hoping to regain some sense of control. We grieve loss and other things that have made us lose control of something that we want or need. So we feel angry because we don't have control um, and we lash out in anger if we don't think we have any other options. Um, and then of course we deny in the first place that we have lost control at all. And then bargaining is that beginning of navigating the middle road. So, okay, we know this thing has happened um, and, and we feel angry about it. And we're hoping that maybe there's a third choice that I don't have to pretend it's not happening and I don't have to give up everything. And so bargaining is that way that we find some sort of balance. So that's where we change our eating habits and it's where we start biking to work and it's where we figure out what we can control and then we do those things. And the beautiful thing about that, I think, is that we are starting to push our energy into something positive. And the planet is still full of mystery that the best scientists mm -hmm. in the world don't know. And who knows? how energetically we can come together with these little actions to buy us more time, um, to make small changes that um, weave themselves together from one community to the next, that trigger um, changes in mindset, that trigger policy changes. Um, and we, we just don't know. So at least as we're starting to do that, we are starting to create change that even if it feels little, even if it feels just for our own sense of well-being, um, anything we do good for ourselves has a ripple effect in the world around us.
the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, acceptance. Can we feel all of those at the same time? And is that okay? Because I'm angry, I'm bargaining, I'm sad, and I accept it all. Right. Totally. Yeah, we, we feel them all the time. Grief is yes and uh the problems of, you know, of climate change and politics and relationships, everything we live in is, is so much yes. And, um, and I think our attempt to, to create things in a linear way to assume that the grief process is, you know, one step to the next, and we move through it cleanly to assume that there's always a, a yes or a no. I think all of that is our attempt to, to create a sense of control in a life that is really complicated on a planet that is really complex. And, and indeed there's very few things out there that are, are all or nothing or black and white or um, definitive. And so that's, that's the messy part of grief, but a really good piece to practice when we're, when we're moving through grief and we're choosing to feel grief and to, work on it and work through it and be in it is just understanding that it's it's messy and all of it is yes and and we feel a lot of things and we have to navigate how to to behave uh once we're informed by all of those feelings and so we have all five as as a feeling and then we sort of mix it together and and where we are in that moment helps inform us of the behavior we need Okay. <clears throat> you tell a story about um, having a problem and seeing a doctor. And it was an interesting story because you discovered that your eating habits helped you. And it was something that the doctor didn't really acknowledge. And he ended up telling you to get a better diet which I found very amusing, but that's denial again. We're really good with denial, especially when we have a foundation, like a doctor, for example, all the, all the things that doctors study and we're trying to get them to get nutrition in their curriculum. That's a whole nother focus with some nonprofits. Um, What can I say here? It's very frustrating. You go to a doctor for help and information and they don't know everything. And sometimes you give them a gem and they don't want to take it in. Right. It's we we love to assume experts can just tell us the answer and we can move along. Um, and the reality is they're, you know, experts don't know everything and and they certainly don't know something outside of the little bit they've learned and i think doctors you know we have this assumption that medical school made them so much smarter helped them cover so much more ground than what any other <laughs> school experience or four year life experience gave us and the reality is time flies and uh, it's pretty hard to to learn um you know, the, the central piece that doctors are specializing in. And if they're, you know, my best friend is a, a nurse practitioner and 
I've seen the way she learns about things and it's similar to the way the rest of us do uh, via the internet. And that's not any shade on, on doctors. Of course, they're, they're learning, you know, what, what it is they don't know. And they're, they're learning um, certain aspects of their craft extremely well. But when we go to a doctor for something to do with a joint or a limb or a, um, uh, you know, one, one certain organ, and then we assume that they're also going to understand nutrition, which is wildly outside of, of so much to do with, um, with medicine. Um, the, the sad thing is it goes back to those kids who we encourage not to critically think, um, and it's as adults, if we've lost our ability to, to think independently and critically, um, not to question every expert as if, as if there's no such thing as expertise, of course. Um, but it's, it's to understand that we can't assume someone has all the answers for us and, and take it blindly. Um, and, and to really look at what, how do people know what they know? And if I'm asking them to know something outside of their expertise, can I assume that they really do know it? And for nutrition, for me, um, I was, I've been lucky enough to, to use my own experience in my own body and know that I've lived now, um, a completely plant-based diet for maybe 15 years and, um, completely meat free diet for, um, more than easily more than 30 and I'm athletic and I'm healthy by so many measures. And, you know, there, there are examples of people out there who thrive and that's, that's our, our experts is, is the, the bodies that we see, you know, looking at those, those experiments of one and, and just, and I think with nutrition, it's once we know that you can survive and thrive in a certain way, um, then we we don't need to continue having the argument that one can't. There's plenty of of living examples of it, and um, I have since found doctors that have been really supportive of how I eat and have been um, encouraging me to maintain that. Have been inspired by. Um, my abilities athletically and, and realizing, um, that I've, I've got some healthy things figured out. Um, the, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that, that eating plant-based, we really have to hear those questions a lot, right? Because we're going against, um, something that's been a norm for a, a few generations, not for very long. Um, but enough that we've forgotten our own internal human wisdom. So in the second part of the book, I don't know if it's equal parts, one thing and another, but I'll say in the second part, you talk about the things we can do. And one of the things I liked was that many of the recommendations I've heard before as solutions for other things like healing when we're in a health crisis with chronic disease. We certainly want to eat a better diet, more plants, and then getting better sleep and meditation. And it's a wonderful thing that the solutions for all problems are the same. 
including healing our planet. Totally. You talk about how the goal is to hold truth, responsibility, hope, and love all together. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep practicing, right? Mm-hmm. And those daily habits of creating better health, you know, whether we're motivated by the planet or by our own sense of wellness or, um, you know, whatever it, it is that speaks to us at the time, just honoring the steps we take for a good goal um, and seeing what happens with the rest is a great journey in in trying to understand how to hold all of those things, how to hold being good for ourselves, for our community, for the planet, um, taking part in it actively and not standing by um, because it's good for us too. It's good for us to get into um, an activism or an advocacy role for somebody else uh, and whatever it is, if it is for the betterment of the community, it improves us. If it's for the betterment of our own body, it improves the planet. If it's for the betterment of the planet, then then we all get um, to go along on the benefits um, as a whole world. So it's it becomes easier and easier because it all is the root and problems all have the same root. Uh, I think the problems in the world boil down to uh, uh, fear and a sense of insecurity and then becoming greedy as we try to make ourselves more secure um, and we don't care how that affects others. And so that has developed a whole culture of crappy things we have to unlearn and undo um, around the world. But then the same side, you know, the, the, the same thing happens on the side of love, that the root of all good things comes from a place of love and wanting what is best. And so since it's all coming from the same root, that means that all the different actions that we take are really all one and the same. It's not so overwhelming um, if we just focus on that core motivation. Um, it's always about you know, letting ourselves be motivated by love and then thinking really deeply about what that really means. Um, and if we feel instead motivated by fear to think really deeply about, you know, why we are off track. I think a lot of what you're saying is an answer to a question I didn't ask, <laughs> which early in the book, you talk about many people feel like there's no point in trying. Why bother? But you just answered that question. So I'm not going to have you answer it again. It just feels good. It right. makes our life better. That's what. That's the point. And right. I juggle all the time with uh, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. And say, you know, what's the point? Why am I trying? And it's just that hope. Feeling like it's the right thing to do and maybe we can turn this thing around and and that feels good right can you talk about ecotherapy and echo psychology in just a couple of minutes <laughs> yeah it's it's a beautiful aspect of of the you know it comes 
it's a combination of the field of psychology and the field of environmental studies, environmental science, um, ecology, basically how, how we relate to the world, what we know about the natural world. And um, there are some great therapists out there who, um, who have created a, a good foundation as a subfield of psychology. Linda Buzzle being one who, who comes to mind and has a lot of great um, clinical literature out there about doing, you know, um, echo or eco psychology, which is studying how our brains and bodies are influenced by the world um, and how we in turn influence the world around us. Um, so, you know, an easy example of this is when I am stressed out and anxious, my house, it turns into a mess. Like it reflects what is going on in my brain. Um, and so we do the same thing to the natural world. Um, and we know that when we're in a setting that is serene or comfortable or safe or organized or whatever, then it impacts how our bodies and our brains work. And so, you know, you feel stressed and you clean your house and you feel less stressed. Uh, it's because you've, you've just created a safe space for yourself. Um, and so that's the, the field of studying that. And then in turn, um, using that therapeutically is echo or, or eco therapy. And there are therapists around the world who focus on that. There are therapists who've um, picked up on some practices that, that emulates that. Um, and so wilderness therapy, being outside when you do therapy, going on walks, um, being in a, a room for therapy that has a lot of plants in it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a wide range of, of ways we are um, therapeutic uh, in connected to the environment. And, um, and so it is a, a field where we might be focused on helping people with climate grief, but it is also a field where it doesn't matter what you're bringing into the office, but we're going to um, center our conversation around being outside or being in a, in a more natural environment, having natural lighting in there, um, or using our relationship to nature as a therapeutic tool. So if you feel stressed out, doesn't matter what it's about, doesn't matter if it has to do with climate grief, um, a really good way to feel less stressed is to go for a walk outside. Um, and so it's it's a really, it's a practical, it's what I love about the field is it's it's really just about returning to what we are as natural beings. Uh, we're animals, whether we remember that or not. And um, so just like this dog next to me, who's like interested in being outside, she reminds me that I also am interested in being outside. Um, and every day after I've walked with her, I know that I feel better. So it's it's a really simple, beautiful reminder that what is simple and beautiful is usually like the right answer for us as animals. Most of us are very fortunate to have a home, a roof over our heads. We can turn on the heat when it gets cold and we can turn on the cool when it gets hot and we have comfort and we have nice beds and all of that is really very fortunate. But 
we do need to get outside because we're animals and that's where we belong and we get we get something from that from breathing yeah get outside okay one of the one of the last things i wanted to talk about is this subject of procreating and having children and whether we should and whether we shouldn't and the first thing we need to be doing is talking about it which is a good reason why you brought it up in the book so you talk about how people parents are are grieving and feeling this this struggle about bringing children into a world that is not easy and may not have the future that they wanted for them and then also there's this intense social pressure you write to follow the norm which is make babies and maybe that maybe maybe some of us need not to make babies because there are already so many people on the planet what's the response to people when you bring up this subject i think it it comes down to realizing we need a cultural shift and we're seeing it as uh, women around the world have more opportunities to be educated so we're seeing the population be driven down by um, a lot of forces, but the biggest one being a right to independence and choice. And I think we would have a much more sustainable population if those people who truly wanted to be parents had an opportunity to be parents um, at the time in their life that it was ideal and they had access to education um, and therefore career choice um, to create um, a sustainable home life for for kiddos. Um, but but more importantly, I think is uh, the cultural shift that we we need to normalize not having kids that for whatever reason, um, about the planet or about our own finances or about our preferences for how we want to live our day-to-day life. Um, it's always been ironic to me that it has been called selfish to choose not to have kids, um, but that we don't critically think about the fact that it can be a selfish choice to have kids. And so, you know, maybe our, our judgment around selfishness and around um, what what we should be doing for society. Like we should be pushing that out and making more room for people to decide what really feels good for them so that we can have the career, um, child rearing included as a career choice uh, that we that we truly want. And if people don't want kids that should be embraced. And if people do want kids um, that should be embraced. And if we get to the point that everyone gets to actively choose what fits best for them, um, and they're not ostracized in either direction by the community, then we may realize, you know, what what we all sort of naturally want as a community is more sustainable. Um, instead of assuming that, you know, the vast majority of women will be mothers and, and assuming that the only way to have a family is, is with um, including the next generation. And so there's just like with everything else, right? There's a there's a yes and there's a, a wide range of what works for different people. 
And we spent, we have spent so many generations judging women who don't have kids. Um, and it's, it's time for us to let go of this assumption that everyone is, is meant to. Um, and then that involves a deeper dive into our religion and into, you know, so many different cultural aspects and where biases come from. But, um, at the end of the day, I think it's beautiful change that's happening that, um, women especially have more and more opportunity to be themselves, uh, regardless of if that includes parenting. Thank you for that. It's a very important topic that we all need to be talking about. We just have a couple minutes left, and I, I had a few questions, maybe. That professor you talked about early on who didn't acknowledge or didn't offer the course study you were looking for, did you send him the book? <laughs> you know, that's I ended up transferring away from that school and having a much better experience um, at the next two schools I went to. And I I was so, if I could just plug schools like Prescott College and um, other progressive schools around the country that are focusing on social and environmental justice as studies. Um, I, I, f I felt like I found my people when I arrived there and they didn't have um, eco psychology per se, but they had the resources in place to encourage me to figure out how to to piece together my team that I would need. And um, I just had a wonderful experience with folks who were willing to explore with me what they didn't already offer. Um, and that that was a really great experience, and probably a big reason that this book exists at all because I was I was given the the freedom to think critically uh, and to to be my own sort of change maker among an entire school of change makers. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a wonderful story. And I would send that to that <laughs> professor and thank him Absolutely. for helping you find your path and what you really needed right. to learn about. You could turn it into a positive thing. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, Last, last question. This is just random, but studying therapy and psychology, is there anything out there that talks about when we eat animals, we're eating their emotions? I know people talk about it, but I don't know if there are any studies about it. I don't know if you don't, if you know, but especially the animals we raise for food, they are totally stressed and crazy and sad and we eat them and eat that. Right. Um, there is a, there's a professor in, in, I forget which school in Colorado he, um, worked at Bernard Rowland, um, had a, a couple books out there, um, that, that sort of touch on that. And I do think, you know, we can think about it spiritually and energy that we, that we create and consume. We can think about it biologically and imagine that cortisol, um, levels that we consume in our food is going to affect ours. And I'm certainly no expert in how that might work, but I imagine um, intuitively for myself that when, when we participate in a food system and we, we feed our own bodies with an unhealthy food system, that there's a variety of ways that that impacts us. And 
that was something that I felt when I was a little kid. And that was why I stopped eating animals because it just seemed, uh, it seemed like an unnatural and, and unhealthy thing, um, to consume something that just, just experienced fear in the last moments, but also was experiencing fear and anxiety and unhealth throughout their life and fed food that was not healthy. Um, and I, it, it seemed unnatural to me in that way. Um, and so I, I would love to see more and more come out around that. I think it's a great argument um, for changing our food system to note that factory farming, you know, we see what it does to the environment. Um, we see the bacteria and the toxins getting put into our water and into our air. We see um, the toxic lives that those animals are forced to live and, and um it, it does seem like something that, that of course, that's why they hide factory farming from our eyes, right? Because we would, would piece together the injustice that's happening to those animals and to the planet, but also to our very own bodies when we uh, become a, a part of that system. Right. Well, we are at the end of the hour. Somehow we managed to get here very quickly. <laughs> Thank you, Shona Weaver, PhD, the author of Climate Grief from Coping to Resilience and Action. This book is packed with a lot of great information to help us understand ourselves and get to a better place. Thank you for writing it. Of course, it's published by one of my favorite publishing companies, Lantern Publishing and Media. Thank you for joining me on It's All About Food. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to It's All About Food. You can always find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send me comments and questions to info at realmeals.org. Everybody, have a delicious week. <laughs>